On November 17, 2018, John Allen Chow, whose photo we have on the screen here, was killed by natives of North Sentinel Island in the Bay of Bengal while attempting to share the good news of Jesus with this isolated, hostile tribe of hunter-gatherers. He was 26 years old. The tribe and the island, which we have up here as well, are protected by Indian law. Throughout recent history, there have been many attempts at contact, and most are met with hostility. Even helicopters flying over are met with the views of the natives hoisting bows and arrows to the air. Little is known about their language or culture. But in the wake of John's death, the internet exploded with critical comments claiming that John Chow was ignorant, culturally insensitive, foolish, above the law, even deserving his own death since the tribe neither needs nor wants anything from anyone outside the island. Even John's father, a self-professed Christian has publicly claimed that he was, John, was a victim of fanatical evangelical extremism. He claimed John's fantasy of reaching the Sentinelese resulted from his irrational religious and glamorized ambition. But those who knew John Chow well paint a very different picture. According to them, John was neither ignorant nor culturally Insensitive, he had felt called to evangelize the Sentinelese people while in high school after a a mission trip to Mexico. During and after college at ORU, John participated in nothing short of three mission trips to South Africa and one to Iraq. Um, John made a first trip to the neighboring Andaman Islands in 2015. He trained with the organization All Nations in 2017 in Kansas. Uh, with making contact with unreached people groups. He reportedly read over 100 missionary and anthropological books in 2017 and 2018 alone. Chow's 2018 trip was the result of extensive planning and prayer over the course of many, many years. He was aware of the risks to himself and to the Sentinelese. He even took steps to protect the islanders from risk of infection prior to making contact, vaccinations and quarantine and all that stuff. But the day before his death, John was taken to North Sentinel Island by local fishermen, Christian fishermen, where he made contact with the islanders twice. In the morning, he gave them some fish before retreating uh, in his kayak. Later, he returned and gave other gifts, um, and he had studied Uh, what were some of the most well-received gifts by other uncontacted, uh, isolated people, people groups. So he gave them these gifts and he attempted to preach to them from the Bible. On the second trip, the Sentinelese took his kayak and shot an arrow at him, which struck his waterproof Bible. John swam back to the fisherman's boat. He wrote the final entries in his journal and he went to sleep. He resolved to return the following morning, knowing full well that he may not come back. And he asked the fisherman to leave without him. The following day, the fisherman, after dropping him off, the the next day returned and 
saw what appeared to be John's body being dragged on the beach by tribes people. The question is, was John a fool to give up that which he could not keep to gain that which he could not lose? The world certainly believes as much. Many Christians believe the same, apparently, including John's own father. Why would a young man give up his life for this hostile, small, isolated island tribe? From all I've read, from what his friends and partners have said of him, John was, was seeking to live out the Great Commission in obedience to and out of his deep love for Jesus. He was an example, even if imperfect, of a Christian willing to lose his life for the sake of Jesus Christ and in service of Christ's kingdom. He believed that the gospel of Jesus is for all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And while not all of us today will follow the exact path of John Allen Chow or the path of missionary Jim Elliott, who deeply inspired him, I believe that God wants us to see today that the heart, the driving motivation behind each of these missionaries is something that each of us, each and every Christian, is called to cultivate and embrace. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 35. Luke 9, verses 23 through 25. Today's sermon is lose your life to save it. And it can be summarized like this. All who follow Christ, all who follow Christ, must carry the cross of suffering and self-denial before wearing the crown of life eternal. There's going to be four parts to today's sermon. I encourage you to count the cost of following Christ. I want us to gain a supernatural view of self-denying, self-denial, suffering, and loss. I want to encourage us that to remember that we stand in a long line of losers. And I want to encourage you to participate in the gospel's very pattern of salvation through loss. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Let's read. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, today the words that you have given to us in Scripture are both hard words and hopeful words. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to receive these words with the power and authority that you have invested to them, not to me, but to them, as your very words. 
we ask, Lord, that as uncomfortable as it might make us to heed the call of Christ, you would strengthen us, each and every one of us, to obey Christ's call. We ask all of this in his name and to his glory. Amen. So first, count the cost of following Christ. Look with me at verse 23. One of the most striking features of this passage is that Luke uses the word cross for the first time in his gospel here. Not in reference to Jesus, but to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is also true of Matthew's and Mark's gospels. While Jesus prophesied of his death in the previous verse, verse 22, he did not specify the manner or mode of his death. Read that with me. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So there's no word of the Romans' involvement. Uh, There's nothing of Jesus' own cross. Now, we know when Luke wrote his gospel, he already knew that Jesus would die on a cross, but in the timeline of Jesus' own ministry, these words to the disciples come before Jesus carries his own cross. You see, the cross is meant for Christians as much as it is meant for Christ. In fact, we might say the cross is most rightly meant for us. We deserve death. We deserve the cross. Jesus joyfully bears the cross that we rightly deserve and goes before us. The image of the cross, though, would have been familiar to the disciples. Crucifixion was a normal Roman executionary practice, even if it was reserved for the most capital offenses. But that Jesus says his followers must deny themselves and take their cross daily implied that this would be a one-way journey. A no-turning-back, everyday commitment to self-denial of the absolute highest degree. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a radical condition for following Christ. I can hardly imagine that many would respond to that message with enthusiasm, myself included. And while it's tempting to think that Jesus is speaking here of only the elite Christians... Um, you know, like a, an elite class of cross-bearing disciples like missionaries or pastors. The words anyone in this verse and whoever in verse 24 don't give us this option. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. This is a call for all who claim the name of Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross each day. When Jesus says, let him deny himself, his wording makes it clear that his followers are not to be governed by mere self-interest. This is a supernatural and extremely countercultural statement, since we live in a world that is saturated with self-interest. We hear that when people say, do what's best for you. But Jesus has a bigger vision for our ultimate good that requires us, at least temporarily, 
to deny ourselves various comforts for the sake of faithfully following him. Now, practically, this may mean giving up good things like discretionary income or time-watching TV. Well, you could debate whether that's a good thing. For the sake of helping others in need. It could mean forgoing the security that comes from living in a good part of town in order to have a gospel presence in a dangerous neighborhood. It could mean leaving the comfort of your hometown, your state, your country, to share the good news of Jesus with those who have not heard. It could mean taking a low-income teaching job at a Christian school. It could mean giving up extra income to stay at home. Raise your children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. It might simply be living below your means to give generously to the church, to missionaries, to a pregnancy center, to, toward any other God-glorifying ministry or need. You see, in these situations, the self-denial, what you're not giving yourself, is motivated by a supreme love for God and others which is the very heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian. The greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. At a bare minimum, this involves the denial that you and your needs and desires come first. But if that's not enough, Jesus goes a step further. Not only are Christians to deny themselves of good things, but... They are to pick up their cross daily. That is to say, we must daily embrace the various kinds of suffering and loss that come on account of our faith in Christ. And each of those words is significant. The text does not say, take up a cross. Look with me there. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, the the cross that you are called to carry will likely not be a literal cross of wood, but each of us, each of you, have a personal cross that you are to carry after Christ. That's why I picked that image for today's sermon slide. Christians are little Christs. We're united with Christ by faith, and we follow in his footsteps. Now, Please hear me. That doesn't mean you atone for your own sins. Um, That is the result of Christ's cross alone. That was my last sermon I, I preached, was the cross of Christ. But you are called to die to your sin nature daily. And each of us has unique sins, struggles, sufferings, and pains to carry on our journey of faith. And it's not a one time thing, it's an everyday reality. But in case you're still not sure if this really is a, an absolutely necessary step in the Christian faith, following after Christ, I encourage you to hear the words from Luke 14. You can turn over if you want to. It's just a few pages. From Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. Luke 14, 26 through 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be 
my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I want to clarify a couple things here. The, the first words that I read, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters, Jesus is not requiring literal hatred toward those that we love. Uh, this is something of a hyperbolic expression that is meant to tell us this, that your love for Jesus ought to so surpass the love, the greatest loves of your life, that your love for them looks like hatred in comparison. I wonder how many of us that's true for. And it's telling that Jesus starts with our family. One of the most culturally accepted Christian idols is the idol of family. We love our families. They're good gifts from God. But your love for Jesus ought to look so much higher and greater than your love for your family that your love for them looks like hatred in comparison. And Jesus says, if that's not true, it's not that you'll just be a lesser, you cannot be my disciple. These are harsh words. These are hard words. But I want to draw your attention to verse 27, which is applicable to our passage today where he brings up the cross again. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me again cannot be my disciple. That's as clear as it can be. You have your own cross and you must bear it to follow Christ. So count the cost. You see, if you're not willing to let go of everything you are and everything that you have in this journey to follow Christ, then you cannot be his disciple. There is simply no such thing as a comfortable Christian life. The Christian life is a cross-bearing life. Are you comfortable? Does your faith in Christ cost you anything at all? It may not cost you the same as it does someone else, but it must cost something. There is some cross for you to bear, and you must bear it. There's no opting out. So if you can't think of a single way that your commitment to Christ costs you something in this life, I want to implore you to do some soul-searching. You may not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you do not bear your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. Now, walking in the way of Jesus may strain your relationships with close friends or family. Your Christian convictions could cost you your career. It could land you in court. It could even alienate you from those you love and hold dear who have chosen to walk outside of God's good design. 
A daily commitment to self-denial is itself a heavy cross to bear. You see, it takes a supernatural frame of mind to embrace the insecurity, the relational pains, the material losses that might result from your commitment to the lordship of Christ over every sphere of your life. It's just not natural to think this way, to think of yourself last. You must gain a supernatural perspective. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind as we heard last week. So that's the second point for today. Gain a supernatural view of self-denial, suffering, and loss. Look with me at verse 24 of our text today. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What Jesus is claiming is truly counterintuitive. To enjoy the crown of life, you must first endure the cross of death. Lose your life if you want to save it. That way of thinking is just not natural, is it? It's something of a paradox. It's a seemingly contradictory statement that proves a very real and important point. You see, by nature, we tend to protect and preserve our lives and our livelihoods at all costs. We insulate ourselves against pain, against hardship, against loss. It's why we have insurance. It's why we put a little extra money aside in emergency funds. It's why we look at crime rates in neighborhoods before buying a house and settling our family in a community. It's why we lock our doors at night. And I want to be clear, that natural inclination, it's not inherently bad. Um, We're not called to lose our lives on account of carelessness, um, but on account of Christ, um, as the text says. We see that when Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake. But I want to suggest that Jesus' radical call does stretch us to think supernaturally about both the comforts and the crosses of our lives. I was struck recently by a um, statement from a Puritan author, John Downham, in a book he wrote on anger. In the book... One of Downham's suggested remedies to cure unjust anger toward others is to remember that all things that happen in our lives are allowed to happen by God, whose purpose it is to work all things together for our good, as in Romans 8.28. And that includes even other people's sin against us. Think about that. That's what Joseph said in the book of Genesis when reflecting on his brother's sin against him. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, Genesis 50, 20. If we remember this, says Downham, we can avoid being unjustly angry toward even those who sin against us. Just as an aside, Downham did believe that Christians can be justly angry or angry without sin. But he says that our tendency is to often allow our just anger to turn into just anger when we're angry about the wrong things or at the wrong people to the wrong degree or for the wrong length of time. And he has a lot of other stipulations like the Puritans do. And here's all the causes and here's all the effects and here's all the, you know, he lists a lot of things. But the principles of Romans 8, 28 and Genesis 50, 20 teach us that real suffering and real loss are not contrary to God's plan and purposes for us, but a part of his design 
to work all things, all things, for the ultimate good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We must take this supernatural view of our self-denial, suffering, and loss. We must look at our personalized crosses from the top down, from God's point of view. You see, from our point of view, suffering, pain, and loss in this life, I think they appear like an approaching waterfall on the horizon from which there's just absolutely no recovery. And so we're swimming against the tide. We want to avoid all pain, all loss, all suffering. But I want to encourage you to take God's view of this. From God's point of view, this waterfall is but a minuscule cascade in the stream that will carry you to Christ, who is the fountain of all living waters. And to heaven, a place where the sea, representing the chaos and the suffering of this life, will be no more. These light momentary afflictions, says Paul, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You don't naturally think like that. I don't naturally think like that. This is an absolutely supernatural, God-given, heavenly perspective on our earthly sorrows. It's a supreme act of faith, and you can't think like that apart from the very Spirit of God transforming and renewing your mind. If this seems absurd to you, absolutely impossible to see how these things can be true, again, I plead with you to search your heart and soul. You must be born again by the Spirit to think this way, to set your mind on things above and not below. It is impossible to think this way, impossible, apart from God's work in your life. Giving up your comfort, picking up your cross each day is an unnatural, impossible task. It just is. But thankfully, we serve a God who works in supernatural ways to make the impossible possible. Think about this. We serve a God who merely spoke our vast universe into existence. Let there be, and it was. We we serve a God who fulfilled his promise of a miraculous birth to parents well beyond childbearing age. A God who miraculously delivered his chosen people from slavery to the ancient world's greatest superpower, Egypt. Think about how impressive the pyramids are. We're still struck by that today. We serve a God who preserved his people's lives in a wilderness through impossible means. Bread from heaven? Water from a rock? Come on. A God who causes the lame to leap and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the dead to live. People, the list goes on and on, but it's quite simple. The almighty God that Christians serve has always made the impossible possible. All things are possible for him. Maybe you struggle. Maybe you struggle with seeing how self-denial, suffering and loss can possibly be for your good. Maybe, just maybe, you have not considered who God is and what God has done. Or maybe you know, but you need to be reminded.
you need to remember the God who spoke to Job in his suffering and loss. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have you entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Can you bind the Pleiades, the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I've only read a small portion of that text. I'm just summarizing some things. But that covers all of Job chapters 38 through 41. If you've never read it, read it. Because the result is that Job is absolutely floored. He's humbled. He's speechless. What can he say? What can we say to answer these things? God knows all things. All of God's judgments are right and true. And we are of little account. So while you might first recoil at Jesus' call for Christians to deny themselves and carry the cross every day, you must understand through the mind of faith given by the Spirit that God knows all things and works all things for your good. This is why you can trust Jesus' words in verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, Jesus calls you to A great investment, he does. But he promises the most astounding return. You are no fool to give up what you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. Life eternal, joy in God's presence, forevermore a happy home free from all sorrow and sickness and sin and suffering and pain and loss is promised you. It's promised you when you follow Christ and carry your cross by faith. Once we've grasped the magnitude, the absolute magnitude of God's power and the complete faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises, you can joyfully heed Jesus' hard words and deny yourself, bear your cross daily. That's what 1 Peter 4.13 says. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, this is, this is a totally supernatural view of self-denial, suffering, and loss. It's a view that has been shared by believers throughout the history of the church. And that's the next point. I want to encourage you with this. Um, remember that you stand in a long line of losers. So whether you're giving up good things or going through bad times for the sake of Jesus, I want you to know that you're not alone. Christians have answered this radical call by God's grace through, through the millennia. From the earliest days, Christians suffered public insult and persecution, even the seizure of their property, as Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 says. And by God's grace, they did this with joy, knowing that they had a better abiding possession, 
Hebrews 10.34. Stephen was killed by members of the Jewish Sanhedrin for his unwavering commitment to boldly proclaim Christ in Acts 17. There's all sorts of stories of you know, tradition about how all of the apostles died um, for their faith. Horrific deaths. I want to share something more particular, though. The Roman emperor Nero, after the great fire of Rome, actually blamed Christians, because you know, historians said he might have been to blame himself, but he blamed Christians and persecuted them fiercely. And this is not the Bible, but this, this is a Roman historian Tacitus who recounts this in his annals. I'm just going to read a, a quote here. Nero substituted as culprits for the fire and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, not submitting to Caesar, right, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment only to break out once more. Not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. It's interesting that he recognizes that. First then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, think about that. Are you a Christian? I don't know, maybe, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. On their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted. Not so much on the account of arson as for the hatred of the human race. Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about Christians hating the human race, which it seems like he might be saying, because, well, we have difficult things to say, don't we? We don't affirm everything that culture commands of us. Or is it hatred of Christians? I don't know. But listen to this. Derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses. And when daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. Folks, you've suffered nothing. I mean, you have. But we complain far too much that we are being persecuted. And we have immense freedom. I don't want to downplay the, the real suffering, the real persecution that happens, but folks, these Christians actually did carry crosses of wood. Not only did the early Christians suffer at the hands of persecutors, but this is, I love this, there's even extra biblical evidence uh, from a letter, 1 Clement, that some willfully sold themselves into slavery. Think about that. To free other people. Or to feed the poor with the proceeds. <laughs> Amazing. The list goes on. Early Christians like Polycarp were publicly executed for their commitment to Christ as Lord. Medieval Christians like Francis of Assisi committed themselves to lives of poverty in preaching the gospel in obedience to Matthew 10. English reformers Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer 
were executed for their commitment to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Moravian missionaries Johann Leonard Dober and David Nietzschmann were willing to become slaves in order to preach the gospel to African slaves on the islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. Adoniram Judson suffered decades of family loss and physical pain to bring the gospel to and translate the Bible for the people of Burma. American missionary Jim Elliott and four of his companions killed in 1956 attempting to evangelize the Warani people of Ecuador and John Chow followed his steps just four years ago in North Sentinel Island. You see, Christians, as it seems, are a long line of losers. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 11 says, by people marked by their unwavering faith in the promises of God who were willing to follow Christ wherever he called them and to whatever task he called them. And if you're still not quite convinced of the goodness of God in calling you to deny yourself and take up your cross, consider the question posed by Jesus in verse 25 of our text. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The answer, of course, is nothing. You have nothing to gain and everything to lose by avoiding Christ's call to carry your own cross. You can have all the wealth of the world, but it will not satisfy your soul. It's temporary. You will find no lasting joy in anything the world can give you. You cannot take your money with you beyond the grave. You cannot remain comfortable forever. Your body and mind will fail you. Your beauty will fade. Your strength will wane. Your heart and flesh will fail in short. But we can stand in line with the psalmist and say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, clinging to the comfort and wealth of the world is about as wise as clinging to a sinking ship in the open ocean. You gain nothing but your ruin and destruction. So whatever it is today that you are clinging to, whatever it is that you are clinging today that would keep you from faithfully and fully following Jesus Christ, I encourage you to forsake it. Forsake it now because Jesus will never forsake you. Whether you're moving your family into a rough neighborhood to be a gospel witness, whether you alienate yourself from unbelieving friends and family by your faith, whether you're leaving behind a good-paying job to pursue vocational ministry, giving up a comfortable retirement to further the cause of Christ, or simply suffering public reproach for your faith, you are in good company with a long line of losers And of course, Jesus is not asking anything of his followers that he has himself not already done. And that's the beauty of this last point. Participate in the gospel's surprising pattern of salvation through loss. As the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done could be headlined in a number of surprising paradoxical ways. Imagine these news headlines. All-powerful God takes helpless human form. All-knowing man exercises perfect humility. And all the wives snicker at this point, right? Um, All-knowing man exercises perfect humility. Master serves his servants. 
Sinless Savior stands trial for sin. Miraculous healer is mortally wounded. Dead man brings others life. Talk about some clickbait titles, huh? But those headlines, while seemingly contradictory, are at the very heart of the gospel. And they illustrate this radical call in Luke 9, 23 and 24 in Jesus' own life and ministry. Jesus' incarnation, his sinless life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection provide us with the perfect pattern of self-denial and loss that result in supernatural gain. Our salvation. We see that right here in verse 22 where Jesus foretells his own suffering and death and resurrection. It was always God's plan to redeem us sinners through a suffering Savior. You see, we're called to carry our crosses if we would come after him. While we deserve the cross, while we're called to carry our own crosses, Christ leads the way in carrying his cross. The cross of Christ opens the way for you to carry your own cross behind him. Apart from his atoning death and glorious resurrection, you could do nothing that pleases God. You could not love him, you could not serve him, follow him, or suffer for him. His cross frees you from the penalty and power of sin, and your personal cross, the cost of following Christ, reminds you of that purchased freedom and the promised glory to those who consider themselves crucified with Christ. So that with the modern hymnist, we can say, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. We can, with Martin Luther, cry, let goods and kindred go. Let them go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Christians bear the cross of suffering and self-denial with the sure hope of wearing the crown of life eternal. The eternal weight of glory will far outweigh the temporary afflictions of this life. It's worth following Jesus, whatever the cost. To live is Christ and to die is truly gain. There's more joy. There's more peace. There's more life to be gained through trusting in Christ's death, participating in his suffering and death each day. There's more than you can ever find in this life, and it's more secure than anything you can cling to in this world. Folks, don't tether yourselves to sinking ships, but trust the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul, Jesus Christ the righteous. Through his death, you can live forever. You can and must carry your own cross if you would wear the crown of life eternal. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you have done the impossible time and time again. I want to thank you for ordering all things according to your will for our good, even the things that we cannot see or understand. 
And Lord, I want to confess that we do not often think that way. I want to confess that we question and doubt your goodness or maybe your sovereignty. I want to confess that maybe we've just been too comfortable. Maybe we've forgotten the call of Christ that anyone who comes after him must carry their own cross. Not to atone for their sins, Lord, and we thank you that you have done that for us. But to show that we are ourselves crucified with Christ. That our lives are bound up in him. That in participating in his death, in his suffering, we also have the hope of participating in his life and the glory of the life to come where there will be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, sickness, or loss. Father, give us this grace to see with eyes of faith. Help us to stand in this long line of losers. May Christ receive the glory, we pray, for all of this in his name. Amen.